Do you put cheese on your apple pie? Um, I don't know that I've had apple pie since I was like eight years old. Why? I don't know. It's just never been. It's really good. It's never been my go-to pie. I don't have a lot of what's pie, your, unfortunately. What's your go-to pie? Uh, I like a pecan. Pecan. Yeah. I, I we've we've definitely had this conversation. <laughs> yes, we have. I swear, I responded the exact same way as a pecan. Uh huh. I'm, I'm having some deja vu here. Oh lordy! Oh, that, that's all corn syrup. Yeah, I think this was also your your response last time. Yeah, what about a derby yeah. pie? We've had this conversation, <laughs> and the funny thing is, I don't remember what what's a derby pie. Uh, it's a chocolate and walnut tart in a pie shell with a pastry dough crust. Yeah, we've had this conversation yes, word for word. <laughs> uh, I guess the show has officially become redundant. Uh, we're just repeating ourselves again. We could talk about your donuts instead. Yeah, I ate one too late last night, and it was mm. it was a bad idea. It was a bad idea. Uh, yeah, so between... Eating a donut and feeling gross, and then Buster, I don't know what he ate, but that dog was sick, and oh no, had to go out multiple times, and it made a mess on the floor, which I didn't clean until the morning, but just had to like, it was a long night with a sick dog, so um, yeah, I'm very tired. I went to bed early last night, so. Can't yeah, what time what time was early for you? Uh like midnight. <laughs> what time What time do you wake up? Uh like today was eight o'clock. So I got a I got like a perfect eight hours and ten minutes of sleep last night. It was great. That's rare for me. Yeah. I think it's going to be rare for me going forward with having an actual job where I have to drive to the office multiple days a week. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's big news. When do you start? Not till the 22nd. No, okay. We should bank some episodes before then. Yeah, if we were... Well, we have this one. We have the one with Perk. We have our men special. Mm-hmm. So if we got all those done before, that would be good. We can do it. I believe in us. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Are you ready? I'm very ready. Who's I'm, starting the show? I'm pumped. <sighs> okay. Let me see if I can do it. Get a nice running start. I don't want to be too radio announcey, though, and I feel like I'm I'm prepped to be like big radio energy. Yeah, but that's okay. Our show needs some professionalism sometimes. <laughs> Once in a while, uh, okay. Especially on a day like today, where I'm going to be dragging ass, <laughs> you're going to have to pick up the slack. Oh no! All right, uh, not my tempo. That's 
we'll get into that. Okay. I, that... Yep. A lot of thoughts. Okay. Hello and welcome to Nashville CA, your double movie, double weekly podcast by Double Dudes. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sean. Sean, how you doing? Oh, no. Uh, better until you said double dudes. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta strike that from the copy going forward. Noted. I can't, Noted. I can't go forward with that logo on us. That label. I'm, I'm tired. I, I didn't get much sleep, and I was at a paint and pints night last night. And so between one too many pints and then a sick dog that needed to go out multiple times mm. during the night, uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna soldier through this one, uh, just like a good slave soldier from the Guar Minion Army would. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, frankly, I'm great today. Today is great the first time i felt relaxed in about eight weeks wow why well because your boy landed a new job yesterday uh i don't start for a couple weeks so now i feel like i'm on vacation instead of actively looking every day for a new job and just sitting in panic that it's never going to happen that's awesome man thank you so it's it's media stuff uh yeah i'm in marketing i'm the senior marketing manager I don't know what that means. Yes. There's no one under me yet. They're going to saw the gray in your beard and they're like, we better get this guy a senior title. (laughs) It's either that or it's senior marketing manager. I'm not quite sure. They're from Canada. The company's from Canada. uh, And I don't know how to speak Canadian. Were you trying to say, were you trying to say senior? We've also been over my lack of Spanish with the Tajine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I might be wrong on that one. I we need to get someone from Tahin on the phone on the podcast and sort this out. Do you think they like movies over there? Someone has to. Yeah, they've got to. So, what are we talking about this week, Sean? You already mentioned Guar. What were you talking about? Yeah. Guar. They're a band, not a movie. Well, we were we were Oh, God. Hold on. Okay. Uh, Sean's Sean's having his breakfast chili. This is all getting edited out, especially that moment. (laughs) So, um, yeah, we're kind of strapped for time here and really needed to record an episode in a pinch, and I wasn't really feeling that motivated to talk about anything except for I really wanted to watch the Guar documentary. Mm-hmm. And so I presented that one to you and you uh, responded first with a Bruce Springsteen documentary, which I literally could not find on the internet until you gave me the full title. And then I had to do deep digs and it was like, it had like a hundred ratings on Letterboxd. It was one of like the least seen pieces of media in the history of the world, I think. Yeah, I can't believe they actually, um, I think they only put it out with like the boxed set of his, of that particular album. And it was a limited run box set too. So 
I, I can't imagine making a whole entire documentary and then putting it out in the world for like a grand total of a thousand people to see. <laughs> so, yeah, that would suck. I mean. Although the guy, the guy I, that made it is Springsteen's like longtime documentarian friend, and he documents all the albums. So it's just his full time job. So maybe it doesn't matter to him. Yeah. Well, it's it's dumb because if they put it on YouTube, you know, they would get so many eyes on it. Oh, yeah. There's a thing I filmed for Cattle Decapitation that I check in on every few years, and it's only like a couple hundred thousand views, but still it's like, Jesus, that's, that's like a weird number of people to think watched some amateur thing I shot when I was 25 years old. And like, <laughs> it's so, I, I cringe thinking back on some of the problems that I had in editing and didn't shoot enough B-roll. Like so many things I did wrong that it, it, it makes me shrink inside myself a little when I think about it. It's not that bad. It's just, I'm a perfectionist about some things. Oh, I, um, I definitely feel that. So, why did you? Well, I guess well you chose um Whiplash yes. instead, and I mean, which order do you think we should go in? Because I definitely have feelings about it, but I'm curious how you feel. I th- I think let's start with Guar and then like move into Whiplash. Mm, I disagree. Okay. I like. I really like the idea of. I watched these movies. I watched Guar first and then Whiplash, but I really like talking about Whiplash and talking about taking music seriously and performance seriously and putting it on such a high pedestal and then tearing that pedestal <laughs> to the ground talking about Guar where the music doesn't matter and it's about the st- the show and the entertainment and the artistry mm-hmm. and the creative element and everything that is like the anti whiplash. Yes. Everything except the music is important. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that would be a more fun way to do it. Okay. But, um, so yeah, let's start with whiplash. You chose it. It's written and directed by Damien Chazelle and of his stuff. I've seen. Yeah. First man, which I thought there was some really stunning, cool stuff in there like the whole launch thing but it's again one of those times where i'm a uh i'm an unfeeling jerk and so i just don't care about neil armstrong and his family and his children and stuff i'm like just get to the moon Mm -hmm. get to the moon stuff i don't care about your domestic life get to the moon god damn it um and he wrote the movie Grand Piano. Have you? Also, he wrote The Last Exorcism Part Two. That's which wild. I just remember being a piece of shit. But have you seen Grand Piano? I have not. Is that with uh, Frodo? Elijah Wood. Yeah. And John Cusack. Well, that's kind of a spoiler. Oh, I don't know, but it's uh, it's a really weird movie. It's really really weird. It's about a guy who. He was like a wonderkind piano player, and then he had a stage fright moment, and so he left the scene for like five years, and now he's returning, and he sits down to 
at his piano at a performance and he opens up his songbook and it says there's a note written on it that says I have a gun pointed at you if you play one wrong note I'll kill you and then he, you know he ends up talking to the guy through an earpiece as the movie goes along and it, it it gets kind of convoluted and weird it's it's basically um phone booth uh-huh. on on a stage Okay. That seems convoluted it, and weird to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. I refuse to watch La La Land. La La Land is literally the the backdrop on my new computer. <laughs> literally a scene. I I just I listen, I know it's a good movie. <laughs> I know. But I don't want it. Uh-huh. I don't want it. That's I'm mean, I'm kind of done with Gosling. Especially now with like I didn't watch The Gray Man, but doing that and what the fuck is this Barbie movie coming out? It looks weird as shit. See, I'm I'm in for weird as shit. Like that sounds good. But Barbie? I mean Maybe I'm trying to think of any other movie that uh, based on a property that thin that has been good, and I really can't. Um, Battleship was kind of funny. <laughs> Is that really what you want to compare it to, though? Like, hey, we're going to be Battleship good. There's got to be another tiny property that turned out to be something good. Yeah. I can't think of it. Uh, the Castlevania cartoon on Netflix. There you go. That's got some lore to it, though. Yeah, it doesn't count. Hey, this is Sean with an editor's note. I'm very upset with myself. I did not mention the movie Clue here. Um, but anyways, he also wrote Ten Cloverfield Lane, which is a good movie. Mm-hmm. So he's had like a weird. Ca- he's had a weird career. I mean, he's kind of been all over the place. What's oh Babylon is coming up. Yes, um and a TV show as well. Or is that the TV show? Ugh. Set in the late 1920s during Hollywood's transition from silent films to talkies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I think this show works because you're the kind of person that is intrigued by that sentence yes. in La La Land. And <laughs> I am not. All right, I, I'm, I'm talking way too much. Please tell me why you chose Whiplash. So, uh, this is weird because I'm going to tip my hand here a little bit. Up until... This viewing, I really loved and identified with this movie quite a bit. Really? Yes. Um, I I feel like I have a guess at it from our conversations, but oh, yeah. how, how do how do you relate to this? Uh, I mean, it's not as intense. He never threw a chair at me, but it reminds me of my relationship with my dad quite a bit. And oddly, the relationship with Paul Reiser reminds me of my relationship with my mom. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what do you know? You got yeah. the whole complete spectrum in this one. <laughs> well, tell me a bit about your uh, 
your musical history with your dad? Oh, it is. Uh, my dad preached that you should practice perfect so you can play perfectly. And if you were just going to like goof around, there's no reason for even picking up the guitar. Yeah. So it's when you pick up a guitar, it's only to do your scales and exercises and that kind of thing. Oh, he doesn't do scales and exercises. What does he do? He just plays. And you should you should play your songs covers as perfect for his own stuff. Covers. This is part of the irony is he hasn't played the an original only... in years. Huh. Yeah. That's that's how can you be such like a stickler about cover songs? Oh, because you should try aren't, to play. Is it, aren't cover songs in nature meant to be changed because you're covering it and then putting a little bit of your own spin on the song? He did not do that until very recently. His goal was to play it as closely to the recorded version as possible. He didn't like going to concerts because other artists would change their own songs. And that's not what he wants to hear. He wants to hear it like note perfect from the album. I like to picture like if your dad, instead of being a music appreciator, was a like portrait or painting mm-hmm. appreciator. And so he would just spend his time with tracing paper and like print out the Mona Lisa and then just like trace the Mona Lisa and just try to like get it the exact yes. same perfect lines and everything. And then like that, that's his art is just tracing things. And I don't, I think he would like, uh, not even appreciate impressionism. Like it has to be realism for him. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the only true art. So how old were you when you got your first instrument? I was 10. I got a uh, red guitar, red Stratocaster knockoff made by Applause. And I remember my uncle brought me a guitar strap, which when I opened it up, it was like wrapped in this package and it said such and such straps. And I thought it was a jock strap. And I was horrified at why he was bringing me a jockstrap for Christmas. And then my parents revealed the guitar, and I was like, okay, this all makes sense now. Um, Did you want a guitar? Yes, I think I did. Did you grow up with your dad playing before that? Oh, yeah. That was definitely like part of our getting together kind of stuff. It was one of the only things we related to. Your mom played? No, no. My, and this is another thing where I think my dad kind of damaged our relationship with music because uh, he always told my mom she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. And then I grew up hearing that as well. He was, from the time I was like a small child, he was like, oh, you can't sing. Uh, I was like, why would you tell a, a child that they can't sing? First of all, you don't even know that yet. Secondly, that's a fucked up thing to say to a kid. Like, no, you have no talent in this realm. This is not for you. Uh, And then only later, like, he and I went on a radio show a couple years ago and did a couple songs together, and I sang harmony. And then afterwards, he goes, oh, I guess you can sing, just not as good as your dad. Which is still a fucked up thing to say. (laughs) 
So this has been going on for 32 years. Yes. Ever since you got that guitar. Yes. It's it's still a competition with him. Wow, this is uh this is fascinating. Yeah. And so I do you relate to the line in this movie? Wait, was it in this movie? No, it was in uh, the Guar documentary, but I'll bring it in. Okay. Where the, the, he says that the, the relationship of the student and the teacher, the master, oh. is that one day the student will become better, will excel and become more than the master. Mm-hmm. And that's the relationship. Except somebody didn't tell that one guy in Guar, the guy right. who was the teacher... Somebody didn't tell him that that's the whole game. Is that when you teach someone, you try to raise them to be better than you. Right. Do you relate to that with your dad? Oh, definitely. Both both of these had moments because that moment is uh, where, and I don't remember the which guy it was. It's in my notes for Guar, I think. Um, but that character, that guy always saw things as a competition. Like if someone else would take his idea and try to grow it, he viewed it as competition. Uh, and I definitely feel that. And then the line in this, which resonates is, um, the two worst words in the English language being good job. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, that seems to be basically a, one of the core concepts of his character of JK Simmons character is just, the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. And can you, like, why should you ever stop? But I, I mean, you know, it's, I agree with him in principle, in theory, because it's easy to just run out of motivation if you do a decent enough job and then you're told that's good enough. But then at the same time, you need to, appreciate when good enough is good enough and that there is you don't need to excel to like astronomical levels and become a prodigy or whatever and you know it's finding a balance in life i'd say is the most important thing yeah the fact of or the idea of playing music or doing anything just for fun i think is uh totally it's totally missed by the entire concept of whiplash. I don't think anybody like they do love playing music and they love creating it, but I don't think they have fun playing it. Well, it doesn't even seem like they have fun listening to music. It's a constant analysis or every time this guy hears a song, it becomes a history lesson where he then has to tell the girl he's dating about, the drummer who's playing in it and it's it it doesn't seem like anyone's actually just hanging out to like appreciate what you're listening to it's always a game of one up one is fuck one upsmanship yes the uh i think the thing that i took away this time is nearly everybody in the movie is insufferable uh yeah i like his girlfriend yes and I like Paul Reiser. Yeah. Uh, other than that, no, everyone, everyone else kind of sucks in their own way. Yeah. Even um, Connolly, who I first referred to as that Archie-looking motherfucker, uh, 
the other one of the other drummers that he's in competition with who seems nice on the surface and then he's very cutting he's very passive aggressive uh and then he gets just outright aggressive during that the big triumphant showdown that they have to have to see who can play the double tongue swing the the fastest um do you like the drumming in this movie um hmm, i hadn't thought about that i like the music like the music is very much up my alley and reminds me of playing in uh high school and college i mean this is you do a lot of this kind of stuff because for me when we we'll get to the ending that stands out but a lot of the drumming in this feels similar to how I feel about guys who become too good at guitar. Mm -hmm. And so then every single riff becomes like a... And it's like, dude, I, I, can't, I can't hear the song because you're in the way of it. Mm -hmm. Like, calm down. Stop showing off so much so I can find the groove of the song and... I find my emotional anchor and attachment point, but that's I've always felt that way with especially guitar solos. Oh um, yeah, there's just a good guitar solo. It has that melody that carries you, and you can hum it in your head. But the ones where it's just a guy showing off how fast he can do sweep picking doesn't impress me. And I I, I kind of feel that way about some of the stuff in this movie is um. It's just, it's so bombastic. That's, uh, there is a drummer that I follow on Instagram, um, who I met her, uh, she played with the rapper Watsky because he, he has a live band play with him. Um, and her name is, it's Sarah T something. And she posted like a seven long minute video the other day of this song she was playing with a jazz band. Um, I guess they're a jazz band, a small little combo. Uh, and her playing was so melodic on the set and it, like it fit in so well, it felt so locked to what else was happening. Um, that I sat there, I've watched the thing like three times probably. And it's the camera is primarily focused on her. And I'm just like, in this pocket it's so cool have you seen the video of that it was one of the earlier youtube videos uh korean drummer steals the show um describe it to me i may have it's like a very fancy korean band on tv on some tv show so they're on a tv soundstage and woman in a sparkly dress and it's it's not a very good band, and they're playing a pretty slow, traditional kind of sounding song. Mm -hmm. Except the drummer just starts to get more and more into it, and so you can see him in the back doing all these crazy faces and throwing his one. Oh God! I just smacked the <laughs> fuck out of my microphone. Um, throwing his hand up. Hold on, and then gotta fix this. And, and just like going nuts back there on on the skins. It's a very fun video. Uh, the woman's name is Sarah Thar, T-H-A-W-E-R. Uh, and if you do like any of this drumming, 
uh, or the music, I would suggest following her because she's she posts quite a bit of it. <laughs> Did you break your microphone? It looks a little whopper job now. What what did the pirate say when he had sex with that drummer? <laughs> I don't know. There she blows. We got to move on. Wow. I, uh, I thought that I thought you were going to go with um what did the pirate say when he had the steering wheel down his pants? Yeah, yeah, uh, you're driving me nuts. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of nuts, no, I guess the raisinets are not a nut. No, but uh, Paul Reiser dumps don't these chocolate, these milk duds and raisinets in the popcorn people. Mm-hmm. First. We already went over my feelings of popcorn in a movie theater. Yes. Don't. <laughs> Just don't. Don't buy it. Don't do it. It's too noisy. But especially, don't dump your milk duds and raisinets in there. My God, it's disgusting. What kind of savage animal are you? That's. I used to hang out with a guy who would dump uh, junior mints into his. Ooh. And that is some chaotic energy Ooh. right there. That's chocolate, mint, and popcorn all going together? That is that is way too much. I can understand much more like, uh, you know, an M&M or a peanut M&M, something like that. That seems to complement it. But I don't... I like to have, like, a bite of the salty, then a bite of the sweet, just as much as the next guy. But all together, I don't like that. That's It's weird. Too many textures going on all at once. No, thank you. I was such an avid fan of Seinfeld growing up that I went through a junior mint phase Mm -hmm. in high school where I think I was eating them and I was trying to convince myself that I liked them more than I actually did. Oh, I I do like a junior mint once in a while. It's not an everyday. It's not a every time I go to the movie snack. Raisinets is my movie snack. I used to eat Mentos a lot. Mm. Just like a whole eat. A whole sleeve of Mentos just in like one sitting playing Grand Theft Auto Three. The the mint kind or the fruit kind? Mint. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. That is that takes dedication. <laughs> I feel like that's work to do that. I, I liked it. I don't know. I don't know. It's not thinking back now, it's like Buster's roaming, sorry. I think he poked his head there in the back for a second. Buster, hold on. Let's right. see if he needs to go out. Needs to go out? I'll be back in a minute. Okay. Okay. Poor dog. Didn't make it outside. Oh, no. But it seems like I think he might be turning the corner on it. Okay. I I know that struggle all too well. At, at least uh, you didn't find it when you were barefooted walking in the dark. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I have done that 
Well, not fun. Nope. Um, I don't remember what sentence I was in the middle of. Nor do I. Okay. Oh, oh chocolate. Yes. Popcorn. Nuts and popcorn. Yeah, don't you do kinda, that. You kind of... Oh, a Junior Mints. Yeah, I was uh, such an avid fan of Seinfeld that I went through a Junior Mint thing. Ate a bunch of Mentos. Mentos are not... I don't think they're meant to be eaten. I don't Like, either. consumed. <laughs> like, at but all? But they're not a good... But, the, well, I, I don't think you're supposed to, like, chew and eat them. Like, in, in consecutive order. I don't know. The, uh... I was such a big uh, X-Files fan that I went through a sunflower seed phase because Fox Mulder eats sunflower seeds. And I would still be in that phase, actually, because I really enjoy them. The only problem is, what do you do with the shells? If you're like a normal person who doesn't like to just create a trail of trash behind you with your spit on it, what do you do with the shells? Where would you be eating them? Oh, like at work or, you know, walking around. So at work, you have a Gatorade bottle that you spit into. And walk. It's what you do. It's better than dip. Dip spit. That's true. Is what I used to do. Oh, God. That having bottles of tobacco spit around my house still. The memories haunt me to this day. Uh, I did see a guy the other day in a very upscale clothing store where I was going to get interview clothes at, um, walking around with a, a, a spit cup, but with a bunch of paper towels stuffed in it. And I guess to help absorb it. So it didn't look so nasty or something, but it didn't help. It was, it was gross no matter what. It just looked like. Someone had soaked the bottom of that in coffee and whoa. Ugh, I don't, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not you know a fan. what else is gross in this movie is uh, I took a music class in college, uh, just like general music, and the professor had a trumpet that he would play. And similar to this movie, it reminded me he had the spit valve. Mm-hmm. And just they just opened the spit valve and it just like pours out on the floor. Ugh. Ugh. I don't, it's gross. I don't like it. It's... And it's funny, if somebody just spit on the floor, I would find that less disgusting than the spit accumulating in a pipe and then, like, dripping out of the pipe. Oh, I hate... I hate when people spit on the floor. I hate when people spit, like, in, in a parking lot. I see somebody walk and, like, spit. I'm like, that's nasty. Don't do that. Why would you do that? Does your does your throat not work? Does your esophagus broken? You can no longer like swallow your own spit. What do you do when you try to drink something? Does it just run down the front of you and a little trickle gets in your throat because you can't handle it? I've got strong feelings on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's it's even nastier when they uh, the people wet their reeds in this movie. There's a lot of, like, mouth action with people wetting their reeds, and it's like, whoa. Mouths are gross. Yeah, we don't need you them. You know, I watch, I watch Hell's Kitchen, and that's not as bad, but um, Cutthroat Kitchen also. I watch with our, my friends on Mondays, and 
the mouth noises of some of these judges. You can hear the fork biting. You oh, can hear no. the smacking and everything. I, I'm... I was talking to my mom about this because my mom <laughs> was in the car with me eating. <laughs> I hope she's not listening to this one. <laughs> she was eating a Rice Krispies treat and it was grossing me out. And she, I, I was like, mom, it's gross. And she's like, I, I don't, I'm chewing with my mouth closed. And she was, but even with the mouth closed. Too much noise. Mm-hmm. And so we started to reminisce about my dad. My dad was just I like I like could not look at him at the dinner table. It was just so gross. Just open mouth chewing, talking. It just ugh. Ugh. So I'm very sensitive to like mouth noises. Uh-huh. I'm I am now hyper aware of both of our swallowing sounds after we uh take a swig of our of our bean juice or water. Don't bean god damn you have so many bad names for coffee. <laughs> I think bean juice is better than morning chili or breakfast chili. Also the 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 swallowing sounds are usually taken out by the the noise gate. Yes. Sometimes we get guests that have uh a drink on the rocks and uh yeah the the clinking is a little annoying in the edit. Yeah, we have learned, right? Like, I don't put the lid on my little coffee mug anymore while we're recording, because it uh, creates tinkling sounds. I also make you hydrate before we record. Mm-hmm. So you don't make gross mouth noises in my ears when I'm editing. <laughs> Why am I the editor? Why am I the one that has to listen to this shit? Like, in, like it put a microscope to it and like listen to it in exquisite detail <laughs> i like the phrase exquisite detail with regards <laughs> to my mouth noises um so one note i wanted to make early on when they're at the theater uh someone runs into the back of paul riser's head and he apologizes to them i feel like this is supposed to be a meaningful moment where we like suss out something about his character versus his son's, but I don't quite know what it's saying. I think it's just, like, the the Marty McFly mm. Crispin Glover syndrome. He's just a little too just, passive. Know, seeing your passive weenie dad and not wanting to be him. Mm-hmm. But, but in this movie, this kid, mm-hmm. I think I think I can forgive this kid, he's, what, 19 in this movie? Yeah, I think His so. character. So that scene is just like, what a pretentious fucking asshole. In that scene with his girlfriend where he's on, or not girlfriend, date. When he's on the date with her, and he's like, here's what's going to happen. I care so much about becoming great that I'm just going to leave you in the dust because you don't matter enough. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, dude, you suck. You just snivelly little 19 year old who thinks you know everything and that somehow the idea of like leaving your mark on the world when he talks about like i'd rather die at 34 and have people remember me than live to it's like would you (laughs) would you because like it doesn't matter if people remember you you're still dead yeah like i i don't know do you do you think about the idea of like legacy and leaving something behind making a mark on the world 
Not really. I mean, although, you know, I I have children, so like it or not, I've left some kind of legacy. Uh, I mean, I do like it. I like my children. Uh, <laughs> that's not to say that I dislike them. <laughs> Father of the year over yeah, here, yeah, this no guy kidding. likes his kids. <laughs> the, uh, But the idea of, like, leaving something larger, and a lot of people who, like, aspire to do film kind of stuff worry about their legacy and like my film's gonna live forever like no it's nobody cares like i love movies and frank i don't care about most of them like if they disappeared off the face of the planet tomorrow like my life would not be that different right uh so it's you get over yourself all movies or just movies that have been made hmm are you suggesting there's some kind of like theoretical box office in the sky where the movies that have yet to be no, made? No, I'm just are saying like to... if if you woke up tomorrow, mm-hmm. if there were no movies that existed, but we were still making movies, so stuff would still be coming out. Okay, you would be able to live with that. If there are no movies, uh, I don't know. But it, but if there were no movies at all, if the art form just did not exist. Uh-huh. I, still got- I don't know if you could. I don't know if you could swallow that pill. As I'm literally wearing a shirt that says "Watch more movies on it" right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. But any any <laughs> single movie, as I look at my Jaws poster, I don't know. But my point is, you know, this guy needs to get over himself and not worry about. Uh, I mean, early on, his dad says, "When you're a little bit older, you have perspective," and he says, "I don't want perspective." Like, shut up. You're 19. You don't even know what perspective <laughs> is yet. So, uh, this entry, or the, the meeting that they have, is very frustrating to me. Um, when he's in the rehearsal space practicing. Mm-hmm. And can we, could you give me character names, please? I, I don't uh, tell her. I was going to call him Tucker. No, 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 his name's <laughs> Andrew. Actor's name. Yes. <laughs> Fletcher. God damn. No, Fletcher is the teacher. Fletcher's, <laughs> Fletcher is J.K. J.K. Simmons' character, J.K. Rowling. Oh my god. god. Good lord. <laughs> we need to stop this. I infected this. you with my ineptitude. <laughs> okay, we got Andrew and we got Fletcher. Yes. So when Andrew's playing on the practice thing and then Fletcher walks in and it's just, you can't fucking win with this guy. Because if he he stops playing, he said, well, why'd you stop playing? And then he keeps playing. He says, oh, was that the answer to my question? But if he kept playing as Fletcher walks in, he'd be like, why are you so disrespectful that right. you keep playing when I walk? It's, it's just I, you, these kinds of people that just can't fucking win with them are you can't have them in your life because they're infuriating. Watching this movie mm-hmm. angers me. That's uh, in my job interview the other day. They asked me, what kind of person do you not want to work with? Or what do you find frustrating in coworkers? And I said, a lack of humility. And then I'm watching this movie and I'm like, oh, every character in here, except for Paul Reiser and the girlfriend suffer from the exact syndrome I was talking about. <laughs> Um, I think it's interesting to see him uh, 
that's like especially cruel or I don't know what's your take on building the kid up to then tear him down is it does Fletcher do that just to inflate his ego even more so he can crush and even like crush it even harder yeah like the scene where he's interrogating him about his his family and all that stuff which uh i think that whole sequence i don't know if you know chazelle shot uh a short version of that sequence basically the year before and it went to sundance and that's how we got funding for the feature i mean it's like 17 minutes or so uh, Which sequence? The whole thing where uh, Neiman, Neiman uh, Andrew is first uh, in studio band, and he's like the alternate for the first part, and he yells at the guy for being out of tune, and then he's nice to Andrew. He's like, "Yeah, don't worry about it, man. Don't worry about anybody else. What's your family like?" <laughs> and then just uses that against him for the rest of the movie. I saw that they recast. When they shot the feature film, mm-hmm. the guy who played Andrew. Yes. That sucks. But the other <laughs> the other drummer is the same. I know. So what happened to that poor actor? I don't know. And I, <laughs> I recognize that kid, too. He's been in other stuff. Yeah. That would just suck to, like, watch the movie that you helped get off the ground, go on to win so many awards and everything, and they recast you. It's like the one guy in, uh, oh, fuck, what's his name? I don't remember. It, Back to the Future, the original Marty McFly. Oh, uh, Eric Roberts. Eric yeah. Roberts? Eric Stoltz. Stoltz. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the other guy was Johnny Simmons, who was in uh, Jennifer's Body. That's how I know him. I just watched that not too long ago. Oh, Andy's in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Is he the singer in the band in Scott Pilgrim? No, he's... Is he the... Uh, he's their fan. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think the singer is also named Johnny something. Um. So you mentioned how Chazelle shot it. What do you think just overall, technically, of the movie, Um, the camera movement, the editing, all that jazz? It is. Yeah. <laughs> I use I use Fosse <laughs> terms you. in my language now. Um, it is so exacting, and if you watch the short and this back to back, you see that he already had the visual language down. The uh, coloring is entirely different because every time we're with the studio band, everything is this golden color, and when he's with the the other band, everything is like a blue kind of sunshine color. Uh, but other than that, the language of the film was already, was already down. And JK Simmons already had that performance down. Exactly. So talking about JK Simmons, wonderful actor. However, he really, I, I don't think he really got pigeonholed. For a while as being this character. And I think one thing that watered this character down for me was have you seen Party Down, the Adam Scott show? Um, like a couple seasons of it. Yeah, I mean it, it it's coming back, but it I think it had two seasons 
maybe three seasons. But anyways, J.K. Simmons plays like an asshole Hollywood producer. And then he plays that character again on um, Hello, Ladies. I don't It's like it. I've seen this character so many times now from J.K. Simmons that rewatching this movie, it doesn't quite have the the zing on the fastball that it used to for me. Oh, that's interesting. I think because I know him uh, from from the first Spider-Man movies and from the I guess the voice work in the games uh, that. He also is very much the same kind of character, though. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem very rangy no. as an actor. Although I think he is. He he was Juno's dad in Juno and he comes across very warm and loving in that. That's right. I forgot about that. He was really good in that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'm that's what I'm craving is just a, a nice JK Simmons. Not he doesn't always have to play an asshole. Right. And this guy is like this is this movie is like it flirts with going too far and being over the top for me and there's there's moments there's like throwing the chair at him when he's at the kit Mm -hmm. and then like shortly after that slaps him across the face four times yeah um that's just like it's almost pushing it to a point of like being unrealistic and I can't really buy into the believability of this. And the other scene that that happens to me is after the car accident, mm-hmm. when he stumbles in like covered in blood and then tries to play it, that scene just felt over the top to me and, and just like a little too much, like a little too much salt on this pasta dish. Yeah. It almost plays like a parable at certain points rather than a realistic movie uh, because it is so over the top and he is so like uh, J.K. Simmons character is so self-aggrandizing uh, that I think it's it, it is really hard to accept that someone like him and I'm sure there are people like him, but it is uh, and I totally believe that movies like hyperbolize in order to make a point but this is it just drives it home over and over and over again and i don't think even in the past couple years when i watched this movie that all the slurs bothered me as much but this time i'm like i know he's a jerk but man he uses like (laughs) he drops a lot of slurs in this movie which i i hate yeah it it reminded me of like football coaches from the 90s and early 2000s yes also i just made the connection that this this movie is what if bob knight was a music teacher instead of a college basketball coach Uh uh-huh that totally makes sense (laughs) well what do you we often neglect to talk about the title of a movie and um what do you what do you make of this title? So it's obviously it's one of the songs that they play. Uh but I think also there's a car crash and he's in the crash and he get whiplash from a car crash. 
but it was there for the short as well. So I think from the short, it was just the the name of the song. But I think in the movie, it implies like the whiplash of uh, Andrew going from like this super competitive Schaefer, and then he gets like yanked out of that. He gets dismissed, which. I don't entirely know why Andrew gets kicked out of school. Uh, like, I know why he got kicked out of the band, but why does he get kicked out of school? I I don't know. If you go to a place like Juilliard, if if you don't make the cut after a while, I, I don't know how those kinds of schools work. Okay. Because there's always, there was the other band that he was playing in. Like, you know, before he got pulled up to the studio band, he was in the common band with the nice teacher uh, and Connolly on the drums. And that just seems like, you know what? Just go back to second string. That's fine. I. I don't know. OK. Uh, <laughs> I did also notice, like, there's this common thread of Andrew getting injured. Uh, when he also, I don't know how he's late all the time. He's so conscientious and obsessive about things. I don't know how he's late for his first day of studio band and he's running late for uh, the performance that one time. But this is like that arrested development joke where Michael Sarah says that he's like a human metronome and he's never late anywhere. Uh-huh. And maybe he's like, yeah, but rhythm and timeliness are not the same thing and he's like actually they are because you have to know exactly how long it takes to, for something to happen <laughs> uh that is funny the irony of a drummer always being late yeah he's dragging he is dragging <laughs> um so the not my tempo scene mm-hmm. it bugs me because he, he's not drag he's not off tempo yeah, I I think tempo right there is like the wrong word. Okay. Because he is on tempo. He might not be drumming with the like the flair that I don't do you know do you understand what I'm saying? I mean he's No. No, I do not. Because I, I don't he's not on when Fletcher counts it off, uh I mean I'm assuming he's off, although to me it sounds like it's minute, right? Like, but that's the whole point. It, it, I don't know, man. It, it all sounded the same to me, whether he was dragging or fast or slow. Mm-hmm. To it, it just, I mean, clearly it was a scene of it didn't matter. Fletcher was going to degrade and break these two drummers down because yes. that was that was the lesson plan for the day. Well, and he also does the same thing to the trombone player who is not out of tune. He just mocks him until the guy leaves uh, and says it was worse that he didn't know. And he points to the trombone player. He's like, it was you. And the guy's like, yeah, I know. It was interesting when he was going through the like the sax players or the clarinets or whatever to see who was out of tune. Mm-hmm. Because my question, can... Can a fretted wood instrument like a clarinet be out of tune? Oh, I mean, I, it 
Like, can you tune those notes? I mean, I think you, you can play out of tune. Like, how? If your embouchure is, like, not correct, uh, you can, you'd be a little bit out. Or if. On, on a saxophone? Yeah, I, I think you can be out of tune. Like, if you don't, if your mouthpiece isn't on correctly, uh, I think you can be, like, microns or whatever they call it out. Are you are you Googling this? No, I was trying to find video evidence to back me up that he's not actually off tempo. Oh. <laughs> oh, no matter oh, what your, talking- your skill level is, a saxophone is a temperamental instrument when it comes to playing in tune. Yeah. So, can saxophones go out of tune? Extreme temperature, which it's hot in that room. You can tell. What about the, uh, they do this like compare and contrast between the earlier band that Andrew is in and the studio band. Like they're very similar in the, the shot selection, but I feel like the earlier one, everything's a little farther away and the details aren't as sharp. Like someone's cleaning their saxophone, um, and it's when you go to the studio band, it's almost militaristic. Like everything is happening in order, and the rhythm to it is much sharper. Uh, and it just feels like, oh, now we're in the professional world. Yeah, I like the montage of those really tight technical shots of just all the musicians fucking with their instruments in little ways mm-hmm. that. I you know it's nice to see. It'd be really hard to fake this movie with people who don't know instruments. Mm-hmm. So it, so it is nice to see a movie about music that takes the music seriously, and you you get a feel for the performance and for being in um in music school. Yeah, similar to like I watched that movie Boiling Point the, the um, while you were asleep at your house. <laughs> I've watched it on your TV, and that was a very good movie about, like, it felt like very realistic, lived-in script about life in a kitchen, and what what it's like to live through that life and go through that in a similar way to this movie. That's, uh, I love, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but anytime you see professionals doing professional shit, like, it's just satisfying. All that, all that stuff in Thief. Uh, like breaking into the vault, all this stuff in heat. Um, but anytime I feel like any realm where you see professionals doing their thing, it's just like it's fascinating. Well, that's like a lot of YouTube is just that now of like lawn care specialists who upload videos of them mowing and edging lawns and they get millions of views and stuff. It just are bakers shaping bread and people build like complete followings online Mm -hmm. just over behind these kinds of things Uh, i'm fascinated by the woodworkers the especially the ones who make things on lathes because that's terrifying to me you get a piece of wood spinning at i don't know how many rpms uh and especially when somebody is doing like um i guess it's like burled oak or whatever is oak the one that gets burls? Uh, 
and the edges are not symmetrical. And I'm like, it feels like you would screw up and stick a chisel where it doesn't belong. And all of a sudden it's sticking out of your, you know, aorta or something. Stick a chazelle where it doesn't belong. (laughs) And you got a bad movie. Uh, Much like you think La La Land is. No, you think La La Land's a good movie. You just don't want to see it. You just don't need it in your life. I'm, I'm sure it's good. And I'm sure it's whimsical and delightful. And captures the magic of movie making and all of those things. I just don't want it. That's fine. Also, fuck LA. <laughs> That's just me being raised in San Diego. Right. Uh, it, it, it still exists in me, especially now. Like, oh, the fucking Dodgers. God, don't get me started on the Dodgers. <laughs> we got to get Patrick on here so I can make you watch Major League. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that since I was like 10 years old or something. Oh, it's so good. It holds up really well. Yeah, any other scenes or things that you want to talk about? I kind of want to get back to your dad. I mean, so when you were... What do you make of this movie towards the end? And like, you know, Andrew seemingly has the realization that Fletcher shouldn't matter this much to him mm-hmm. when he leaves the school. But then by the end, he comes back and he's clearly still under Fletcher's spell and wants to give him the middle finger and a big fuck you to him at the end. Right. Just what do you, what do you think of the fact that essentially like, even in like the face of a student's suicide, Fletcher kind of gets vindicated at the end of this movie. Um, it's rough because it feels like Andrew needs that validation from Fletcher so much. And Fletcher's never going to give it to him, right? Like, that's not what he does. He breaks people down. He's like the, the drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket. Like, he never says... Uh, you lived up to my expectations. And I think that's what happens at the end uh, is Fletcher tells him, you don't see him, him mouth it. You see his eyes as his, as he mouths the words, good job. Like that's gotta be what he's saying there. Right. Oh, interesting. I didn't think about what he must've been saying, but yeah, I mean, he, he finally gives him the validation at the end of this movie. But it's not, because he said good job is, is the worst thing you can tell somebody. Yeah, but I don't know. I feel like that was his Charlie Parker moment or whatever. Who's the drummer they were talking yeah. about in this movie? Bird. Or, uh, no, um, was it Buddy Rich that he threw the uh, I don't know. The symbol at? I don't know. I don't know jazz. But um, it's just, I I don't know. I, I, I wish Andrew was able to, like, find his own path. But I, it, I guess that's the interesting thing about this movie is that, yes, he's a villain. But he still gets results mm-hmm. by pushing this kid to the extreme. Um, and I think it's interesting. There's two scenes in this movie that make me emotional. Uh, 
and it is right after he leaves uh the music school and the the woman and his dad are sitting there trying to get Andrew to basically you know put a statement out against Fletcher uh and which he totally should do like Fletcher is an abusive asshole and if if people are worried about their their child's safety um they absolutely should be warned of what kind of person he is but Paul Reiser says um you know why why would i let that guy get away with this like he takes a stand for a second and he's like why what you're the most important thing in the world to me i would never let him do this to you and you shouldn't let him do it to other people that gets me emotional there's like something about him standing up for his kid there that gets me and then the other moment is kind of almost a counterpoint uh because when he's giving his final, that final concert, uh, Paul Reiser comes to the stage door and looks through the stage door and his, it's all in his face. He never says anything, but his jaw kind of drops and his eyes open wide. And he realizes for the first time how good his son is and you know what that has done, like what, uh, Fletcher actually pulled out of his kid. And it's astonishing to him. And that moment gets me like that realization that uh, he has grown beyond his father and his father recognizes that even though Fletcher never will. And if, if he wanted his dad's approval, he would have it. And, and but he's, you know, got this fake father and Fletcher uh, that he's never going to, you know, live up to his expectation. In your own life, have you been able to figure that shit out with your dad and not, and like that, the validation that's not coming, at least like musically? And I think it's, it's always a struggle because just the other day, uh, after I got the, the job, I was talking to my dad and he always plays this game of like, uh, it is always one, one upsmanship when, and he wants me to compliment him. He's like, oh, he tells me I'm a good dad. And he goes, you're a lot better than me. And like, he's like fishing. He's fishing for me to say how good he was. And yes. the other day, I just didn't do it. I was like, I'm not going to play this game. Like, <laughs> we're just not going to go down this road of trying to compare who's the better father. Because I do realize that I am. <laughs> Like through no fault of his, just just by dent of the fact that he was a truck driver for years and literally couldn't even be around. If there was nothing else, um, his chosen occupation took him away from the family, and you know, therefore you're not as attentive just by rule of being gone every week, you know, and only home on the weekends. Uh, so if for nothing else, the fact that I was a stay at home dad for a long time. Like I recognized that that would automatically make me better and more attuned to my children's needs. Yeah. There's a lot of stay at home dads who are completely checked out though. So that's not, oh, that's a, true. That, that's not a pass, a guarantee of a good father. <laughs> uh, when your dad talks to people, 
does he place his hand on the wall behind them <laughs> so that he basically like encompasses them? Because when Fletcher does that to Andrew, I'm just like, uh, this, I, I know this person. I know this person mm-hmm. who, if you're standing with your back to the wall, they're going to put their goddamn arm like over your shoulder. And it's just like, oh, uh, you, yeah, you're a big man. Look at you. Yeah. Wow. No, he's not like that. He does, uh, he gets very close and talks with his hands quite a bit. Yeah. And kind of invades people's space that way. Um, but no, that scene where he's basically kindly grilling Andrew for all those family details, uh, it is. I, I know the first time I watched it, I was like, man, this is a really complex character. He's. Fletcher has all these sides to him. And ever since then, I'm like, nope, he's just a dick. He never, he (laughs) never lets up. The only moment where he really seems to show anything uh, real is right when he learns about the other student's suicide and he's angry. Like, that's a different kind of anger that he has in that moment when Andrew starts to argue with him. Uh, Even when he presents it to the class and he talks kindly about that other student, it's all manipulative, and he's trying to make himself look good. Yeah, and he's also, you know, talking to Andrew, basically, like, conveying the same story about that kid Mm -hmm. to Andrew in front of the whole class, and it's, uh, it's, yeah, he's so manipulative of this 19-year-old kid who is so easily manipulated. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm glad Paul Reiser is there for this kid. Even if he does eat raisinets and his his popcorn. Yeah. How'd you and your dad end up on the radio? Oh, uh so I don't know if I told the story before when a few years I, ago I, I I remember vague details. Okay. Go ahead and tell it again. A few years ago, I actually had started doing a documentary um because I was working with a a voice coach on a project of his and basically he was trading me vocal lessons for uh video work. Um so he was a high end voice coach. He charges a hundred and some bucks an hour. Uh so it was kind of a equitable trade. And when I first went into him, he was like, No, you can carry a tune. He's like, you can't belt, but I can teach you how to do that. But he's like, you're you're in tune. You're fine. And I immediately was like, and the thing is, I was in choir in high school. Like, I directed my senior choir concert. That's how well I did in choir. And I still, because my dad says that I can't sing in tune, uh, I still carry that with me. So I decided to do it. Really? But if you're in a choir, (laughs) choirs require you to sing in tune with multiple other people, correct? Yes, generally speaking, yes. So you would know if you couldn't carry a tune because it would be very obvious. Also, I used to play trombone and I played it in college and never got called out for being like out of tune like the kid in this movie does. So, yeah, well, it's so, yeah, parents parents words can burrow themselves deep can't they oh yeah uh but i decided to do a documentary and following like me doing the vocal lessons 
and then actually doing a performance with my dad. Um, and I just never got enough footage to finish it, but I did find the performance and it was because of a friend of a friend who runs a radio show down here in Nashville. Um, it's like a live weekly kind of thing where they put on skits and, uh, they have different performers come on and it's actually run by, what is it? George Hamilton, the fifth, I believe. And we got up and did one of his father's songs. Uh, and then a Tom Petty song as well. Because my dad only knows covers. Who's George Hamilton the fourth? Uh, he was a uh, somewhat famous singer in the country music space, like classic country music. Uh, and we did the song Abilene. I would. Would I know that song? I don't know. You have to look it up. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, had you and your dad sung before together? Um, not really. Sometimes, uh, like he would, he came down here and did a couple performances, like at campgrounds and stuff. And uh, I played backup guitar and sang with him then to get ready for the radio show. But all when I was a teenager, I would play bass or guitar with his band. Um, I played drums for a couple months as well when they needed a drummer uh, but I never sang backup or anything gotcha yeah and so what was your experience like overall like coming away from shooting that documentary footage and doing that radio performance mm -hmm. seems like that was a kind of a big moment it it was weird because it did feel really good then my dad had to undercut it by saying, well, you'll still never sing as good as me. And, but it's still him talking to like 10 year old me in my head is still the thing that sticks. I think even now, if he was like, I was totally wrong. I shouldn't have said that. It would still like the weight of that still is it's in the foundations of the building that became the adult version of me. Ooh. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. We all got some funky building blocks, don't we? Oh, yeah. And it's... All our houses are made with some, like, really shitty, weird bricks. Yeah. <laughs> and you just hope it's not, like, too much of, like, a load-bearing brick. Right. You're like, oh, can I actually take this one out and replace it with something that's that's shaped the correct shape? Well, I think you should record a project that's just the sloppiest guitar possible. Mm -hmm. Just to, like, snap yourself out of it. Ooh. Just, pl just play a mess. Uh-huh. That's how I play. I'm, I'm a mess. When I play open mic and stuff, uh -huh. it's just... It's, it's a little untidy, my guitar work. Because I, I get really into it, and then I start strumming hard, and then I start <laughs> making up strum patterns as I'm playing that I've never tried before, right. and I, I don't know what I'm doing. I just I, I just try to play with emotion. Which? And the, te the technique often gets left behind. That's, and that's all that you had shared with me before 
coming to town was like your open mic stuff. And I think a couple of recordings that you did at home where you just like lay into the guitar, really, uh, except for the American movie podcast we did. I've never heard you do fingerstyle. Uh, and then we were walking around and you were picking up $5,000 guitars at the guitar shop and playing some wonderful fingerstyle stuff, which I am both in awe and jealous of. So kudos to, on that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Picking up those guitars was very scary. Mm-hmm. Holding a guitar that costs more than some cars <laughs> was uh, a wild experience. Yeah. Um, anything else for Whiplash here before we close this out? Um, I do think that Andrew is on a path to become Fletcher or could be like Fletcher, uh, except for he has more humanity in him. And there's the one, the first date scene, uh, when he actually like tries relating to I'm sure she has a name and I feel bad. I feel bad. <laughs> I <don't. laughs> uh, and, but he is so, he, he asks her like, what is she majoring in? Uh, and then why are you even in college? If you don't have a major, like you need to be obsessed with something. Otherwise, what are you even doing with your life? But at the end of that scene, there's a shot underneath the table of their feet moving together. And, it's just a very sweet kind of human fumbling adolescent moment where I feel like he's, you know, he's real uh, in a, in a world other than drums in a world other than music. Uh, and I really like that little moment. Her name is Nicole. She's played by Melissa Benoist. Yes. She's played by Supergirl. Sure. Yep. Uh, and, uh, I think by the end of this, unfortunately, I feel like Andrew has relapsed, mm-hmm. basically. I think leaving the school and everything was almost like going through a program and getting into rehab, putting the drums away. And then you see that shot where like he wipes the dust off the set as he comes back to it, and he's just... I I feel like... Yes, I think he will be like a famous drummer after this, but I also think he's going to have a miserable life because his like his worst instincts were just validated. Yes. Absolutely. I think it's almost worse for him that Fletcher uh invites him to do that and if if Fletcher had just stayed in the school setting, once he left school, he would be okay, I feel like. But then the fact that Fletcher is like out in the real world doing this with a pro band as well, that's it's just like, oh, all of life can be just like Schaefer Conservatory was. Um I had a specific question. Oh what do you think happened to the songbook? I mean there's two songbooks that get mm-hmm. There's a lot of missing songbooks in this. Yes. But the the first one, you, do you think Andrew intentionally did that to fuck the guy over? I really don't. I also, I wish that they had brought up the fact that he can't play without music beforehand. Uh, 
that Tanner can't. Because it's it just feels very convenient in that moment of like, the you know, we didn't know what the stakes were other than someone else misplaced their music and he yelled at them. Like, you know, what's that going to do? But. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. We didn't we don't have the setup that lets us know that this is a colossal situation. Yes. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. But then we see that again at the end with uh fletcher not giving him the sheets Mm -hmm. or whatever song they're playing and yeah because here's the other thing is like is jazz so complicated that a drummer a good drummer an excellent drummer as he's purported he would be able to bullshit his way through this right like i I, no i feel like he would be able to find something no absolutely not is it that complex it is that that complex yeah that's um Part of what I've been studying in my guitar lessons, actually, uh, we've been breaking down the song Giant Steps, and it is literally like half a measure at a time, trying to go through the changes and talking about all the different modes that it moves through. And it's like, you can't just walk in and solo over that. So I would imagine like with the drums, you can't, you also can't, uh, you might you might fool someone yeah, who hasn't heard it what's before. What's there to know? It's <laughs> like it's one and two and three and four and one and or one and two and three and four and five and one and, and that's that's all there is to drumming. I just gave you everything you need. There's also one two three one two three one two one two three one two three one two. I feel like Michael Myers is about to kill me. <laughs> yes. That's that's exactly what that was. <laughs> so to wrap up, uh, Whiplash, I, I, like I said, a, a little bit of zip is lost on the fastball mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Watching this again, uh, I still really like it, and I think this would really kill on a first viewing. And that we didn't mention the solo, but the solo at the end is awesome and. The first half is cool, and then I I love a song that goes down, 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 down. Mm-hmm. And then you get the big build-up again, and the big crescendo that goes higher than the song ever did before. Modest yeah. Mouse does it a few times, and those are always really big, like, adrenaline spike moments for me. So this one, the way he goes down, 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 and Fletcher... I, I did really start to connect with this movie in, like, the last two minutes as Fletcher turns the corner and starts to build together with this kid now that he's finally like got the kid where he wants him in that mindset now these two can like build this moment together in this gigantic crescendo and i did really feel the power of it then um it's four out of five for me um yeah there is a there's a song by pulp that does that same thing like a friend uh that it's it's a really good song to begin with. And then it has like this amazing, uh, just the ending portion where everything kind of changes and it becomes much bigger, uh, because they primarily do like Brit pop songs. So to have this kind of like jammy sort of end is, uh, really feels freeing. Uh, and up until this viewing whiplash had been a five star movie for me. And it's one of my most viewed movies on Letterboxd, and I'm sure that I've watched it without logging it as well. 
but this time it is. It's a four out of five. It's the I found the characters. Full point. Yeah, I found the characters a, lo- a lot more lose grating. A half. No, our, our our discussion almost bumped it up another half though <laughs> to back to four and a half. Wow, I could see this being a five on a first viewing. Yeah. It's very funny that this movie is a Blumhouse production. Yeah, I thought that was wild. Because Blumhouse just makes like shitty young adult bad horror movies. So <laughs> I don't know where this one came from. Didn't they also did The Invisible Man though, which was uh an adult horror movie. No, they they've done some good stuff, but then they do that um Treasure Island remake. Oh, no, Fantasy Island. Yes, Fantasy Island. Yeah, Fantasy Island. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Michael Pena. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note of fucking Michael Pena, we'll be back after the break to talk about This is Guar. Okay, up next we're going to be talking about This is Guar. It's a documentary from 2021 directed by Scott Barber. Uh, it recently premiered on Shudder, which is where you can watch it. And um, I chose this movie because Guar is definitely not one of my favorite bands, but I thought they were really interesting. And I got to see them perform at Sounds of the Underground tour in 2006 or something. It's briefly covered in this movie when it talks about Guar kind of rebooting as a metal band. And so I saw them when they are on that tour. And uh, from what I remember from that show, I wasn't up close, so I didn't get covered in alien semen and blood, unfortunately. <laughs> but I do remember, uh, let's see here, they brought George W. Bush out on stage, and then they eviscerated him and were just, like, pulling his guts out. And then there was a guy dressed in, like, red Nazi... KKK robes and he was like a Nazi priest and that guy got decapitated and fed to a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex (laughs) on stage if I remember correctly and um, so they were just a band that was on my radar every now and then I'd watch YouTube videos and stuff of them and I, 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 I was so happy with with this documentary what's your history with Guar with this movie, what do you think? I think literally, uh, I knew some of the albums from like hanging out in record stores and their appearance in, um, empire records was my only like yeah. actual exposure to them. That's definitely where I saw them for the first time mm-hmm. that Ethan Embry scene. Oh, and Beavis and Butthead. The, Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, Beavis and Butthead nauseates me. Why? <laughs> I, almost, I almost lost my coffee on that one. <laughs> I saw that. Um, yeah, I remember watching it across the street at my neighbor's house, and I, I definitely felt, like, too young, because at one point somebody cuts their finger off with a uh, lawnmower or something okay beavis does and and there's like blood squirting and it it was just it was a lot and it it just felt 
it felt like one of those things where I, I caught it as a kid and I was like, oh, I, sh- I know I shouldn't be watching this. Like, this is, this is a little too risque for where I'm at, but I want to be cool with the, the cool kids here, so I'll watch it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why, but it, it never evolved past that. Um, also, that Sega Genesis game that gets brought up in this documentary where it's all about getting tickets to see a Guar concert. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played that game fairly frequently as a kid, and it was so fucking hard and cheap that it really, it, I, my mouth tastes like battery acid when I think <laughs> about that game. Fuck that game. So cheap. So cheap. What's, what's the, uh, the range on a game being super hard? Like, there's games that are hard because they're janky. And then there's games that are hard because they are so well crafted. Oh, it's it all just comes down to if it feels cheap or not. I'll give you like the perfect example is a game like Super Meat Boy mm-hmm. or maybe Cuphead, although I did give up on Cuphead, but where it's like the difficulty is so finely tuned that it's right there that I know I can do it, and it's just a matter of me mechanically doing it and right but when i when a game when a game has bad controls or something and you're in a really difficult section that's when it's just like oh fuck this piece of shit and like yeah that's when i like alt f4 and then just like uninstall a game or whatever like that's when i'll just i don't like to get angry with video games (laughs) and i don't often do but that's when it'll happen yeah um Kira and I have been playing Cuphead uh, when she's over, and it's kind of, uh, our mileage varies, but we don't play it for very long. Like, you can sit down and play Mario Kart, like, all day long, right? Like, yeah. it's it's fun and kind of soothing type of game, or I can play, like, Skyrim for hours on it. Like, it's just kind of like, I'm walking around, and occasionally I have fights and stuff. But Cuphead is your hands are sweating, your heart is beating, and, like, it, my jaw hurts afterwards because I'm so tense. <laughs> Cuphead's so hard, man, but I grew up, I, I've never accomplished it, but at one point, I think this was before quarantine started, I was trying to no-death run um, Contra. Oh, okay. Because they released on Contra, Konami released Contra, the Contra pack on PlayStation 4. Mm-hmm. And so I was just trying to no death run it. And I could get so close, but I'd, I'd always die once somewhere. But Cuphead's kind of similar where I, I don't mind a game if there's a pattern to be memorized. Because then the more you play, you just, you find your run, you find your speed run, your line. Right. And... It you builds recognition and muscle memory, and it's very satisfying when you're initially confronted by a level that seems daunting and impossible, and then 30 minutes later, you're able to breeze through the first half of that level, and you you know you just slowly build your run. That's uh, <sighs> I remember playing Tony Hawk, like that's specifically a game where you like you find one line to groove and how to get from 
uh, trick to trick in the most efficient way possible. And I would like, there was, I don't remember the button combination to restart, but at that point in time, it was like, I could lock onto it. And as soon as I screwed up on my line, like just restart, restart. And it was like, I could do it without even thinking, just bloop. You're right back at the beginning. I can only play VR for about about 45 minutes at a time seems to be my window and then I don't know if it's just like the it's not natural for the brain and so like my brain is just like working overdrive or what um but I I find it to be like mentally exhausting to to play VR games and sword fight or oh yeah shoot guns and peek around corners or um do those things yeah <laughs> uh so wait what does this have to do with war where are we at beavis and butthead, beavis and butthead. got That's, us all the way here yes as they so often do uh also uh there's another mike judge movie called extract and it fucking sucked <laughs> uh i don't think i made it all the way all the way through that one actually i remember <laughs> the is jason bateman right yep yeah yeah i i was like oh the guy who made office space is out with a new movie that that's got to be good right nope unfortunately not although once again i have not watched office space in a long time i don't know how it holds up I have no idea. Also, I think it's interesting that, um, I don't know, whatever that guy's name is, Peter, aside from seeing him in Band of Brothers, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. Um, I do know. Ron Perlman. (laughs) Ron Livingston. (laughs) (laughs) Um, wasn't he in the. No, I'm thinking of a different guy. Gotta be a different guy. Uh, Ron Perlman would be a great member of Guar because you don't even have to put makeup on his face. Hey, now. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. You went there. He's He's got a very uh, distinctive look about him. So this documentary, it's... Uh, it's it's a straightforward, like standard presentation documentary. It's it's not often that I've seen documentaries that jump out of this norm. The one that often I think of is either the Apollo Eleven or Man on Wire as examples of documentaries that eschew the normal talking head combined with old footage format. Mm-hmm. Um uh the imposter kind of does that and uh what is it oh my gosh the act of killing have you ever seen that one uh no act of killing it just seems awfully heavy to me oh it is it yeah. it definitely is but it is it's amazing uh 
but it it's a is, lot. Is that a Herzog movie? No, it's um, Joshua Oppenheimer. Same. Uh, Oppenheimer, just like the guy who built the atomic bomb. Dude, I was genuinely worried about my hearing during the Oppenheimer teaser that we saw mm-hmm. at the Belcourt. So loud. Yeah, like also, upsetting. I'm so done with Christopher Nolan, especially like that. It's just... I'm just so checked out, and it's it's gonna be Christopher Nolan. He gets a chance to write another robotic scientist character who does not have human emotions and just is fixated on just like science or time travel or whatever. What the fuck ever. I'm not convinced that Christopher Nolan is a human being. <laughs> it's uh, especially if it's weird if you look at his first couple films. Uh, Memento's so good. Memento is so it's good. It's so good. And it's simple but complex. And it does tap into like human things. And I just like, what happened to that guy? Mm-hmm. Show me that guy again, please. Uh, the same thing with uh, following. I mean, that was like his. I don't know that one. That was his very first film. It took like a year for them to shoot because they only shot on weekends. Uh, and when he had enough money to like do anything and everything was donated and it is wild for me to see like, of course I'm in the the Soderbergh camp where like things can be rough and ready. You just kind of go with it and you, you know, if you shoot on an iPhone, you shoot on an iPhone. If you've got like a prosumer camera, you shoot on that. Uh, But to see that they started in very much similar places and Nolan is like, no, you have to shoot on IMAX. You can only see my things in IMAX. That's the only true way to see them. It, that is, it seems weird to me. Uh, two things I think. It, one, it's interesting that your dad instilled this idea of perfectionism in you with music, yet with movies, you're totally cool to go <laughs> freelance willy-nilly. Yeah. Um, I forgot what the other thing was. Well, that's it. That one thing was good. The one thing that you brought up. Yeah, that was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. A good thing. <laughs> um, let's see. Nolan. Well, speaking of like, kind of, uh, by any means necessary filmmaking, uh, right from the beginning, I was like, oh. I love this band. I don't want to listen to them. I don't want to go to the concert, but I love the concept of the band. But they reminded me of Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell right at the beginning. Like, hey, we're doing this school thing. It's not quite everything we thought it was going to be. So we're just going to go make art on our own. Like, I could see that. That attitude of, like, this is basically a middle finger to the establishment. And we're going to make something cool. That's my first note is that a bunch of art students making scum dogs of the universe. Yeah. Movie to basically hold up a middle finger to their school and to their art world and to everyone in the movie whiplash. Yes. Uh, (laughs) It is especially in the beginning. They stand in stark contrast because all they want to do is 
Like they want to make a movie out of it. They want to make comic books. They want to make everything but music, essentially. <laughs> that just happens to be one one of the many avenues that but they don't seem inspired by the music. It's just almost the necessity of we're gonna put on this show and it's gotta be something. Yeah, no, like we we're much more into the theatrics, mm-hmm. but how, we need to get people into the seats somehow. Right. And nobody's going to come just see our weird stage play where we just decapitate things without music of some kind. What do you think about... I really like the collaborative nature of this group of artists, and it seems like... I I mean, they talk about how Brocky took things over a bit later on, but it seems like there was so much collaboration happening between visual artists and makeup people and the the woman who got to do like torch dancing and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And it just, everyone kind of got to have their personality and to compare that to whiplash and to kind of bring it back to your idea, your dad's idea of creation where whiplash, the band collaborates, but it's only one voice that's being spoken. Mm-hmm. It's whatever is on the sheet. It's whatever that, composer wrote so is it really a it's a collaboration but i is it a collaboration a collaborative creative process i don't i don't think so i don't know you tell me no i think um whiplash is specifically a uh interpretive process Mm. uh there's nothing Actually, I don't think like if you are on on an assembly line, you are not necessarily collaborating with anybody. Right. And that's what whiplash kind of feels like. Like you're not doing anything creative. You are stretching your abilities to be the best that you can, but it's only in that particular realm. Uh, And I think that collaboration is like, I don't know, everyone brings their ideas and things might be faulty and things might not work. And you really figure out like the conflict breeds something new. And in Whiplash, the conflict only breeds uh, like perfectionism in one realm. And it doesn't expand. It doesn't grow anybody. It might grow your skills, but it doesn't grow you as a person. It diminishes you as a person. Uh, it's a lot like the army. Like you are necessarily lesser than the group as a whole. That's interesting. Yes, there is a definite removal of individuality. Mm-hmm. Whereas Guar seems to promote your individual. I mean, you know, you got the the slave pit guys who don't have names, but. All the other members of the band have specific names and backstories, whether it's Ballsack or uh, Beefcake, <laughs> Techno Destructo. I mean, there, there's like rich story and characters for all these people to 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 perform and to excel in and to stand out in. Um, it, it you know, and then. It's interesting, like the stuff with Hunter Jackson 
who was one of the the first guys in the band with Dave Brocky. I thought it was interesting his whole thing of like he left the band to become a prison guard and then he comes back and the way he comes back is he wants to come back with control is is very interesting that like they had this collaboration going on and then this like this guy's idea to return to the band was to be techno destructo coming to return to the band to take control of it and it's like i don't i don't know if he realized the irony of being a character of himself or not but it, it <laughs> i thought that was really funny the it is weird though, like with the individuality in it, um, because a lot of the characters get replaced with different players underneath. Like at the end of the documentary, they state that there's been a hundred people, at least through the meat grinder of Guar, whether they're playing musicians or part of the slave pit or part of the show overall, um, and that they reckon that like what was it? 30 some people were in the, I can't remember which role it was, uh, but the guitarist, because like for different photo shoots, when they were in between guitar players, like just anybody would put on the outfit. Uh, but it does seem like the creativity overall, it gives them an output or an outlet. Um, unlike, uh, I specifically was thinking of the band ghost because they have, the front man and then they have nameless ghouls that's the band <laughs> and like they can swap people out willy-nilly and you'd never know because they're behind all the makeup and everything and but that's the point it's guar seems they've to swapped s- out the the lead guy too right a few times i think he's just taken on different personas oh okay yeah man talk about a band that's like you got your marketing down just right. Oh, yeah. And I don't even think their music matters what they would play. It's like Slipknot. Oh, you think so? That's interesting. Well, yeah. I, I think the masks are such a seller. Yeah. That the music doesn't have to be as good. It's almost like being in uh, like a Christian rock band. Where it's like you get the look and the moves down, and they're just happy you're in the right realm and you're playing to them. <laughs> like this band speaks to me, not specifically because of the greatness of the music, but because they're kind of throwing the right shapes at this point. Oh, I was grateful for like there's a band called Living Sacrifice, and they were a Christian metal band that would change genres with each album so sometimes they were like death metal and sometimes they were always trying to just like hit whatever was popular right but i was very grateful when i was a devout youth group going 13 or 14 year old and like feeling weird about listening to system of a down now because i feel like they're not a very good christian band (laughs) and so (laughs) started listening to stuff like that when people were like how can it be how could this be Christian? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, whatever. It's just, it's just the sound. That's what I'm after. It's just the sound and the feeling of it. And then it's just a bonus for me that the lyrics are not about killing God or hating Jesus or anything. (laughs) 
the did you ever have uh like at youth group one of those posters that was like put out by the record labels and it said it was like if you like this secular band you'll love this christian band and they had like weezer and radiohead and all this stuff like i i distinctly remember those little posters and flyers that they would hand out to try to get you into their version of of rock and music I still remember the lyrics to so many youth group songs. It's unbelievable. <laughs> to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory, pour out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. I got hours of that up in my head, man. <laughs> uh... Just a quick Google still like brings up six amazing Christian bands that are under the radar. Christian artists who sound similar to these secular ones on Reddit. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember being excited when I learned that POD was Christian and they're from San Diego. So it's kind of double up for me. Right. Ah, what a weird, what a weird realm. Also, uh, you were talking about the band that changed sound with every album. For a while, that's what Guar did. Like, they were just like, eh, whatever, the music doesn't matter, so we'll just kind of indulge our whims, and we might play lounge music now. Oh my god, that that was ridiculous when they were playing that. It reminded me of a scene in, like, Deadly Premonition, so <laughs> Twin Peaks, but in my brain it's Deadly Premonition uh-huh. of like the lounge singer with a woman lying on a piano singing. I was just like, this would be so weird to go to a guar show and see this lounge act. Oh yeah, it's like uh, Richard Cheese. What's that? That's if you recall the 2005 Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead. Um, there is a oh yeah. There's that. Get up, come on, you're down with the sickness. Yes, come on, you know you're down with the sickness. Yep, yeah. that's Richard Cheese. Uh, I wonder if you know after watching many other Zack Snyder movies, I wonder if Dawn of the Dead is actually good or if it was just kind of new at the time. I don't know. I I haven't seen his uh the Justice League recut. Um I watched it in one sitting with some people on the Discord. Yeah. And it was uh it was long. <laughs> it was fucking long. <laughs> That's I think Eli is a defender of it, although he hasn't finished it. <laughs> Which seems seems on brand. That doesn't count. You can't do that. <laughs> I think what he saw was better than the previous version, uh, or he enjoyed more than the previous version anyway. I don't know, man. It was weird, and it just, like, for no reason, let's put it in 4-3 presentation. It, it just... Whatever, that dude. He is an interesting one, for sure. It, it seems like he would like Guar, doesn't it? Probably. You know, I... One thing that I really loved was 
everyone seemed very sweet yes. in this documentary and in this band. I mean, I know they had conflicts and fights and stuff, but it really seemed like a bunch of nice, like, kind of gentle people who are just weirdo artists who came together. And so, like, it's just the juxtaposition of these smiling, happy people on these interviews cut to, you know, a giant cockroach fighting Godzilla on stage <laughs> and a woman spraying blood out of her vagina and just, <laughs> just such a funny, such a funny comparison between who they are off stage and on. And the fact that they're all, I mean, except for Brocky, they all seemed to be fairly quiet people, like all kind of nerdy and all having a lot of feelings, but they talk about it. Like they don't share their feelings with each other really. Um, but you could tell each of them are very sincere people and taking it very seriously and kind of getting their feelings hurt when things don't work out. And I'm like, I never pictured that in Guar. I pictured like, you know, um, something like a motley crew, but with more blood. Right. Um, I, and there's like very sweet stuff in here too. When they talk about, I mean, living in that bus, Mm. that bus setup that they have where it's like double decker sleeping. That reminded me of how people slept in master and commander, where it's just (laughs) stacked hammocks in there. But when the guy talks about having like such a distinct memory of Dave Brocky reading a Conan book to them by flashlight Uh in the van. It just, it sounded like a big slumber party for kids. And then you get to go out and make fun shit and craft crazy suits of armor and skeletons and robots and dinosaurs. And it just, it, it, it seemed like such a fun adventure aside from the, the, like eventual, um, drugs and booze and everything that goes along with rock and roll the the fact that on the bus uh not only were they playing D, but brocky was drawing maps and i don't know if he caught it in one of the shots he has his collection of miniatures with him so that yeah so that they could like full-on play not just like cinema of the mind they were there with their their grid maps and minifigs and i'm like that's very sweet and dorky. You don't do that unless you're like all in on the nerd lifestyle. I love it. Yeah. Uh, playing my first game of Dungeons and Dragons at your house was really fun and fulfilled. Uh, something I've wanted to do for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very tired <laughs> after six hours of it. I was my brain wasn't working anymore, but it was really fun. Oh, by the way, in our last adventure that uh, you couldn't join because your your mom was in town, uh, you did gain 180 gold pieces. So, hey, yeah. what do you guys do? Just drag my unconscious body around? I think that's the idea. Like from battle to battle, <laughs> they just kind of pulled you. <laughs> just drag me through the grass. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exciting. Um, have you? There's a good documentary 
series that came out. I can't remember the the guy's name is Sam something, and he did Metal: A Headbanger's Journey and Flight Six Six Six, an Iron Maiden documentary. Um, just good documentarian, and the D Snyder's interview with the PMRC. Oh yeah, I think was it. Uh, made me remember that, and it, it's so funny that you know they're they're trying to censor music and so they got d snyder this guy who wears you know makeup and everything and feather boas and they thought he was just going to be a joke and a clown and d snyder went in like completely prepared for this deposition that they had and so at one point tipper gore asks him about some lyrics that were written that were like Clearly, like sated or um, like bondage, sex bondage lyrics, mm-hmm. but it was just all implied. And so then during the interview, D. Snyder's like, "Well, if that's your interpretation, then I'd say that you have a dirty mind." <laughs> 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 so it made me so happy to see that, and then you know the whole scene of Guar getting arrested and or Dave gets arrested. Uh, that was gnarly, though, when they were sodomizing that priest. Yes. With all sorts of things on stage. <laughs> I mean, good on them, because fuck, fuck the Catholic priests and everything, but uh, <laughs> it's just crazy. And that cuttlefish. I love that they, they, they constantly call it the cuttlefish. Yes. No, no one calls it his cock or his dick. It's the cuttlefish. And uh, Ethan Embry just seems delighted by that fact he's like oh that's how they get away with it and like slaps his knee and laughs well and it's hilarious because as is often the case and now across the this country with a a push to ban books and stuff people still don't realize that when you try to do this all you do is draw more attention to things Mm -hmm. and make them more popular and so by putting guar in their place and arresting them Great, they're now headline news on MTV News and in Rolling Stone magazine and all these things. And it seemed like that Dave's arrest really helped skyrocket the band into like a, a place of infamy. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's the the Barbara Streisand effect, right? Uh, I've heard of that, but what is that? Um, it is. Barbara Streisand tried to keep people from photographing her wedding, I believe it was. Uh, and so, oh, her house. It was just her house. And it just made more people want to photograph it and disseminate the pictures uh, of her of her house than it ever before. And on that note, nobody should listen to this podcast. Nobody should share this with their friends. This is a private show that Josh and I do. And I swear to God, if I find out (laughs) one of you people has been sharing this with your friends and family members, I will freak out. (laughs) This is is a private talk between two gentlemen and should (laughs) should not be shared. As a matter of fact, if you're listening to this, uh, you're already violating our rights. You're part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be part of the problem. Be the entire problem. I like that. <laughs> um, other fun things from this movie. Getting kicked out of the Grammys 
after 15 minutes of being in costume. Mm-hmm. But I love that they then they took their costumes off and sheepishly went back in in their suits and sounds like they sat down and were good boys and girls <laughs> and behaved after that, which I find very funny that like, yeah, they're punk rock, but they're still polite. They're not going to yes. like ruin the show for people. They just wanted to put out their spectacle. Yeah. Who was it that uh, at the MTV Music Awards that caused such a ruckus? Uh, Kanye, when he interrupted Taylor Swift? No, it was years before that. Um, somebody was, like, on the the giant sculpture outside, like, shaking it. Oh, no, with the, with a guy... Oh, was it a guy from Rage Against the Machine that climbed up on the stage when, like, the Wayans brothers were going to be presenting? So I, I feel maybe, like I just yeah. watched this video. Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, also, if you ever want to have a good time, they show a clip of them on the Joan River show, Odorous and uh, Beefcake. Mm-hmm. And then also Odorous would go on Fox News sometimes as like their alien space correspondent. Um, Dave Brocky was so goddamn funny. Genuinely hilarious guy i really believe he's one of the best frontmen ever in rock and roll history Mm -hmm. i he's so important to the band and it's he's not a great singer at all clearly (laughs) the way he sings is just kind of like yelling but he brings so much charisma and character to the band and it's just it's he's everything that you want a frontman to be. He's engaging. He makes you interested in that you, you want to like pursue him. And you can just tell, you know, everyone talks about how charismatic he was and everyone everyone's day was better when Dave was around. And even through his character, I still get that feeling that you can tell that this guy was just a fucking blast to be around. Uh, so all these different shifts, the style shifts in the band, which, which era do you identify with more musically speaking? Uh, my favorite song of theirs, they play it in this movie, uh, once or twice is sick of you. <laughs> sick of you. I'm so sick, so sick of you. It's, uh, they played at the very end. It's the song that goes over the credits. Um, so that's, that's my favorite, and that's just, like, basic shitty rock, kind of. Yes. Where I identify with the band. You know, they, they played at Sound of the Underground, and Sick of You is the only song that I remember, because it has a very memorable, um, melody. And it reminded me of like a pirate drinking song. Okay. And, um, but you know, honestly, I, I haven't listened to a ton of Guar in my life. Mm-hmm. I've put on the albums every now and then here or there, but it's much more of a, they're not a band I would listen to, but they are a band I would watch live performances of. That totally makes sense. Um, trying to think if I have anybody similar to that. 
and I don't think so. I think they they kind of occupy our rarefied space because of, <laughs> because of that. Actually, like the spectacle seems much better than the music on its own, and it's uh, it would be like listening to um, a jam band on record, right? Like Fish supposedly is never as good as they are live on record. That kind of thing, where you're like, no, it's the show. The show is the band, uh, rather than what what they actually put down on vinyl, as opposed to some other bands where the record is like Pink Floyd. They put on a great show, but they put so much into the record itself. Yeah, my friend who's a deadhead is like, ah, nobody listens to the actual albums. You listen to the the shows. Yeah, same with Fish. I think especially with Fish. Also, listening to the show Analyze Fish. Fish is a terrible band. <laughs> They're so bad. <laughs> also, when you say Fish, the funniest moment in this movie for me was uh, the head of Metal Blade Records is being interviewed. He's like, you know, these guys write some really catchy songs that could be played on the radio or somewhere, but, but Dave always wanted to put obscene lyrics in, and then it, it cuts to, Fish fuck, baby! I'm gonna fuck you with a fish! Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, much closer to Frank Zappa than anything else. Like, I don't know if you've, like, delved into Frank Zappa much, but where he was... He did push the, the musicality, but lyrically he was like, I'm going to say everything you don't want me to say, essentially. That's what the lyrics are going to be. I only know Zappa from posters, basically. <laughs> college dorm posters. Uh-huh. I don't think I've ever actually heard his music. Uh, my dad, actually, oddly enough, um, I think the album was called... I don't know if the whole album is called Billy the Mountain, or just the record or the song uh oh no it's on just another band from la uh and there's this like epic song that's about this mountain who is who walks around and does stuff and i don't know why my dad was obsessed with it but that was my first exposure to frank zappa and i haven't gone much beyond that because it's intimidating the man has far too many albums uh for one one person, I think. Like when I got into the band Coil, and I looked at their discography, and there was like forty different releases. I'm just like, oh god, where do I start? Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel when they talked about Dave Brocky deciding to play as the Terminator and getting in character? But then it seems like something in his brain broke, and he just stayed in character for months, a la Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman. I don't know, man. That's the part where I kind of start getting off the train, because uh, I don't remember the replacement guitar player's name, but the guy who's in Rise Against now, uh, Yeah, talking about that. I don't know. I couldn't put up with that. Like, it would freak me out at a certain point. I think it would, it would also hurt my feelings. I'm a little too sensitive <laughs> to be around somebody who's the Terminator all the time. 
I think it it would be funny for a while, but eventually, I I, I agree. I I would lose my mind because I'd be like, I swear to fucking god, if you answer me right now in an Austrian accent, I will lose it. You need to be straight with me and tell me, do we have a hotel for tonight? Yes. The Terminator does not need a hotel. Uh, just like you know, there would there would be a breaking point, and supposedly this went on for months. Um. Yeah, this is also the part where they talk about Brocky starting to not, he like wouldn't sleep for days, taking psychedelics. It's, it, it, I, I feel uneasy, you know, working music festivals and stuff when you, you be around someone who's just on a bender like that, and then they start adding the substances. And it's, it, it's like being around a wild animal. Even when things are like calm and you, you think the animal's like fine. I'm, there's always like 10% of me that's on guard around mm-hmm. someone like that. And it's stressful. It, and especially when that is the front man and the leader of your band, I could see that being really hard to deal with. It's, we talked about um, in American movie, like being around those guys when they're drunk would be difficult. I can't imagine maintaining that level of like you've got to keep your head on a swivel because not only is your interactions with this person altered because of the substances they're on or whatever they decide to do, but their interactions with the rest of the world would be just buck wild. And you have to kind of be the referee because you know, you're the only one who knows what's going on and sensibly cares about this person. Like I can't imagine trying to go out to eat at Denny's after a show with the Terminator. <laughs> I think that's also the reason that I don't like the Jackass movies that as much as I would is because I'm just stressed out watching them because everyone's so dang mean to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if those movies were just fun stunts without all the cruelty and pranks and animal stuff, and gross stuff. Just give me the fun stunts, please, and leave all the the rest of it out. And I would be totally into it. Uh, I don't, I don't like people um, hurting each other when it's for. I don't like people hurting each other. I just don't when it's real. Uh, even in the newest one, I haven't seen it, but even in the preview where I believe they smack Eric Andre in the face when he's going to get the coffee. Uh, yeah. I'm like, nope, don't like it. No, he was just trying to have a nice day (laughs) and buy a latte or what have you. Yeah, I would you ever accept an invitation to go to visit the Jackass set? No, no. I don't know what they would do to me. If you were their cameraman, I mean, being their cameraman seems just fucking miserable. Yeah. Uh, Also. The the thing that surprised me about Guar, as opposed to like Jackass, uh, and it, it is relevant because Bam is one of the talking heads in this documentary. I was surprised to see him. Yeah, because uh, he's had like an embargo about him basically with since the new Jackass movie came out and his whole getting booted from that and needing treatment and you know and there's there's people always. There, he's always in the news whether he's in treatment or checking himself out, and it, it 
I was surprised to see him in this movie. Oh, that's what I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, but the idea of someone being always on and the people in Guar talk about, oh, it's nice. At the end of the day, you can you take the outfit off. You know, you get to your Guar for a few minutes uh, while you're on stage doing your stuff. And then you're Dave or Hunter or whatever the rest of the time. It's like, OK, that actually seems like a, a healthy attitude to take to something like this. Not being uh, not thinking you're an intergalactic monster <laughs> hell bent on destroying Earth at all times. Well, yeah, and they talk about Dave seemingly losing his mind a little bit when at the end where when he was on a bender talking about like turning the compound into an actual basically like turning Gwar into a reality and I don't know. I'm sure that guy was off his head at times, man. Um how funny was it when Hunter got caught with a merchandise flyer? but he had his new Philadelphia address listed on Oh my gosh, when they were talking about like everyone else was partying uh, or doing signings, and he was out in the parking lot selling bootleg Guar merchandise of his, of his own. I'm like, uh, do you respect the hustle, or do you get mad at that guy? I think it depends on which, if you're in the band or not. Yeah. I yeah, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made on Guar merch. I feel like yeah. if you're in the band, you should kind of be on top of that, not just letting one dude handle it. But it's kind of what I love about this is it's just it. It seems like Guar is just a touring group of nonsense. Yes, a bunch of eccentric weirdos who are nice people who probably aren't very business-minded or good at the business side of things, but they just want to have fun and put on shows and make big monsters. Well, and they do talk about, towards the end, uh, kind of their, I guess, comeback and rise to being a, a, a festival staple uh, that they overhauled how they do things. And it looks much more professional, like... Uh, Rather than hauling stuff around in the back of a bus with a bunch of trash bags <laughs> over it, they have uh, they have like gear boxes for everything, and it like streamlines their load in and load out, and uh, looks much more professional uh, and easier yeah, easier to handle. I saw them, and they played only like a forty five minute set or something at Sounds of the Underground, and they were able to do a full setup and takedown of their stuff, and um. You know, the movie, we've been talking about Dave Brocky a lot, and, you know, it's it's really sad, you know, his overdose. I was reading at the time that he died, he was, he would, he was a big Washington Redskins fan, um, and he would write NFL blogs for MetalSucks.net, mm-hmm. which is like a heavy metal blog site. And so I would read, I was reading his stuff like that year up leading up until his death. And so it, it, it hit me hard, honestly, it was, it was, it was real sad and a real shock. And I, I really liked the guy a lot from what I had seen from him. And, uh, yeah, I definitely got emotional here at the end. And there, I think there's some real profound and 
beautiful sentiments from some of these people. Um, the woman who, towards the end, says, uh, when we lose someone, all the noise fades away, and we remember all that matters is love. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really sweet. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, um, when the other guy's talking about like people saying, like, oh, without Brocky, there is no guar. I thought his response was fucking hilarious, which was, yeah, well, since your grandma died, your family sucks. <laughs> um, but this movie, uh, you know, we've been talking about the heart of this movie, and we, it, 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 I think this is a really interesting documentary because it, it kind of foregoes the music, as did the band a bit, mm-hmm. and focuses more on the show and the people itself, which is... I think what drew me to the band and um the, it closes on a really beautiful note pull it together and still the world needs a guar you know it needs guar needs to smack it around and tell it what to do and tell it why it looks like shit and tell it why it sucks you know and hopefully there'll be some beauty in that And I just, I love that quote at the end of this movie. Yeah, I thought it was, uh, got surprisingly deep. Both, like, the heartfeltness of the actual participants in the whole, the the fact that, uh, I don't remember who it was, uh, who, the guy who was um, Hunter's protege, and friend. I think his name was Will. Okay. Uh Will, like he devoted decades of his life to being in the slave pit and just maintaining the outfits and creating new props for them, uh, for the band itself, getting underpaid, uh, because essentially it's a, a thrash punk band, <laughs> like at its core, and their audience is never gonna be all that wide to begin with. Uh and then he gets legit jobs working on movie sets and then goes back to Guar. Like that's very, that, that family aspect, that sweetness that goes along with that. I did not expect any of that heart to, to be in this documentary. Yeah. No, that or the scene where that whole thing happens where they, they, pull up on some guys and then they get shot at and oh my gosh Dirk Pete's lying there shot on the back of a car and everyone bolts except for Dirk and Dirk stays with them as men are approaching them with guns and it's just like god damn what a what a friend that guy is to not take off and to stay there with his shot friend that was like I don't know I, I was really grateful to the interviewees that they were willing to be vulnerable on camera. Yeah. N- nobody seemed to have that much of, uh, an attitude or an ax to grind, except for maybe Hunter. Uh, he was, but even then, I mean, by the end of it, he does, you know, that reunited scene with will. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I think you're right. It does seem like maybe it was Brocky's death that brought about, closure i mean hunter says i still didn't like the guy and right whatever else but maybe that 
put everyone in the mind space of being more forgiving of each other or something. I, I don't I don't know, but I, I it was very nice to see this movie end in such a communal and heartfelt way. I, I was just I was really surprised how sweet this movie was, considering it's a movie about space aliens that are here to enslave us all and decapitate our presidents and priests. <laughs> <laughs> the um it put me in mind, I mean, I don't know if you've ever, ever watched uh, The Decline of Western Civilization documentaries by Penelope, Penelope Spheris. Uh, the, fir- the first one not. is about the early 80s uh, L.A. punk scene, and then the second one is called The Metal Years. Uh, but everyone, like, the performances are great. There's a Black Flag performance on there that I absolutely love. but. Uh, everyone is like high on their own supply a little bit, right? Like they're, they're bought into their, uh, their coolness and the importance of being a rock star. And I think that that is for the most part absent from this. Like, I think a lot of the people in Guar still look at it as an art collective and that the whole point is that you don't take it seriously. Like the point of this art that they've devoted their lives to is to kind of take the piss out of everything else. And I think that's great. There's something about devoting yourself to uh, being something joyful in the world. That seems like what they want to bring is like, you've got the commentary, but there's also a lot of like, we're just going to goof around and have fun. Uh, yeah, and to bring it back to Whiplash, it, it, I, I'm I'm a Guar guy. I'm not a Whiplash guy because life is life is long, but also confusingly short, and it doesn't really make sense. And it just, it, why should we take things so seriously? Mm-hmm. I, I really feel like life in many ways is like a cosmic joke put upon us. And so to to be so serious, especially about art, to take art seriously and to, to not be able to to laugh at yourself about it or to to think what you're doing has importance. Like in the end, I really believe like the only thing that's important in this life is just like happiness, love, picking each other up, all these things that I feel like you get at the end of the Guar documentary of in the end that like it's Guar was about a community of friends who came together to create and to collaborate and to have fun and nothing else mattered. And I think that's just such a healthier mindset than to try to think you're going to like make yourself something and that you'll find your satisfaction in life once you reach that pinnacle where like you know once I perform at um oh fuck whatever that famous music hall is once I once I if I were able to perform a show there then that would mean I had reached the top but what happens so many times boxers sports champions 
you get that championship, you win the MVP or whatever, you reach that goal that you've always aspired to your whole life. And it doesn't fulfill you. And it doesn't complete you. And that's a scary fucking shocking moment that a lot of people are confronted with. And I think it's because it's the, the, it's like getting back to that idea of like human closure and the fact that we can reach that moment that like our big cinematic moment that will put all our puzzle pieces together. Shit doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So just, just laugh. It's, it's, Life is fucking stupid. It's too stupid to take seriously. It, so just just try to laugh every now and then, you know? That's, uh, I mean, yes, I always go back to my Soderbergh and my Springsteen. But Springsteen has this quote uh, about, basically, when you walk out on the stage, uh, he has to feel like it's the most important thing in the world. But he also has to feel like, yeah, it's only rock and roll. It's not that big of a deal. And he has to hold both of those thoughts in his head uh, while he's playing. And uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I feel like that, like the, the passion that you put into it for the audience and for the performance is one part, but also realize that, you know, people could be sitting at home and watching the bachelor. <laughs> like it's, you're basically on the same level. You're a piece of entertainment. Um, to make people kind of forget about their lives for a little bit. And it should be something fun and, uh, you know, escapist in some sort of way. And that's where it's funny because in not being so seriously, that's where its value comes from. And something that you can gives you a little bit of heart and a little bit of joy in the world. And that's why it should be taken seriously. It's that contradictory thing. You got to hold both ideas. Uh, and that's there's something very zen about that. And I do think you just kind of have to, I don't know, you just accept that shit is happening and you kind of got to go along with it. And specifically, uh, no, singing on stage with my dad was not some sort of beautiful cinematic moment where I got all this closure and everything kind of happens. It was just like a thing that we did on a Saturday morning, you know, and we went out for, uh, I think biscuits and country ham afterwards. Like it was not that big of a deal. Uh, it didn't change my life in the ways I thought it was going to. You made me think of, uh, season six community moment, which is the episode with the giant hand. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, there's a speech at the end that Abed gives about the giant hand is. I have discovered the meaning of the giant hand. A hand has two functions, to grip and to release. But without both of these powers, it is useless. Like newborn infants, we grab what comes near us, hoping to control it, taste it, jam it into another child's eye. But the time we spend in control of our world is the time we spend letting go of others. Ideas, stories, pride, girls in soft sweaters, video games, buttered noodles. Grip one for too long and you lose so much that you've never held. This giant hand was sent to all of us as an invitation to increase our mastery over the power to hold on. 
and let go. Wow. I mean, perhaps not surprising coming from that particular show and that particular character within that show. Uh, but yeah, that's beautiful. Oh, every once in a while, I need, I just need like a, a Jeff Winger pick me up speech mm -hmm. from community. And, uh, yeah, community is my comfort blanket show right now. I haven't been watching a lot of comfort blanket, like rewatching TV shows much lately, but, uh, if I'm going to take a nap or anything, uh, community is what I'm going for. See, for me, it's always either um, Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, or Mystery Science Theater 3000. Those are my, like, I'm going to lay down and I just want people talking. Uh, although, at night, I do fall asleep to Bob's Burgers. I know. But I really enjoy that show. I bet it's a great show. I just wish the characters had chins. <laughs> It's I, right, I we, we, no I want a list I want like a letterboxed list or a spreadsheet somewhere of your grievances, uh, like actors you don't want to hear any more from, uh, <laughs> <laughs> directors who are in the doghouse and yeah. uh, facial features that <laughs> that you don't like about animated characters. It would filter out a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, I'm just, I'm down on, like, all animated movies in general. I have a friend who's, he's a 50-year-old man. He's watched Lightyear twice. Okay. Two times. Two times. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we gotta get out of here. What, what would you give This Is Guar as we wrap this episode up? Uh, I'm giving it four stars. I think it's a, it is a great, sweet documentary. Uh, and it gave me a lot of insight into this band that I knew next to nothing about. But now I feel like I know the people and I appreciate it on a whole on a lot deeper level. Yeah, same four stars for me. It it's a little long at an hour fifty, but I, I it didn't feel egregious and the pace is good and um yeah, I, like I've said this whole time, I was just surprised how much heart this documentary had. And I look forward to Scott Barber and his next documentary or whatever he's going to direct. This is the only thing he's directed so far that I could find. Mm -hmm. um, but I would definitely watch something by this filmmaker again. Oh, I 100% would. I wish that... Uh, and it might be, there's all kinds of things with the documentary, right? Like access and the right situations as far as the music goes. Uh, but one of my favorite bands, The Replacements, I really don't like the documentary about them. It is, it seems very surfacy and it doesn't even have any of their music in it, which is just kind of sucks. That was the weird thing about that black metal band, that black metal movie. With a Culkin in oh, it yeah, yeah. a few years ago. There was almost no black metal in it. So what are you guys doing? The soundtrack was just... I don't know. I don't know. What are you doing? If you're going to make a movie about music, you should include that music in the movie. Unless the point is that you don't include it. Like, very much on purpose. 
Give me an example of that. I I don't know. I don't know that I have one, <laughs> yeah, but I could you're I could making see shit up again. I could see where that would be the point, but yeah. <laughs> oh shit. Uh do you have anything that you would like to plug? Movie, book, show? Um I mean, I'm all in on Better Call Saul. We're we're rounding the corner into the last couple episodes now. Uh so I've been obsessively watching catching up on this season and it's just phenomenal it's a great show i'm very curious to see how it's gonna end Mm -hmm. i've been a little these past two episodes have not been my favorite i'll put it that way they've been really good but they're not these past two episodes have not been on like the pinnacle level of the show, mm-hmm. but we got two left, and I'm very curious to see where it's going to go. Uh, what about you? Uh, what have, do, what have you been been into? I'm going to recommend everybody watch the rehearsal, and if you have if you don't know about that, uh, it's made by Nathan Fielder. If you don't know who that is, everyone should go watch Nathan for you. And then after you watch Nathan for you, you should watch How To with John Wilson. And then after you watch How To with John Wilson, you should then catch up with us watching the rehearsal. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's some of the most incredible TV I've ever seen. The fact that this show, like the absurdity of it could only exist in real life. It's like, you know, truth is always stranger than fiction. And this, this show is so emblematic emblematic Mm -hmm. how do you is that the word i'm looking for yeah that's a good word it doesn't feel right i mean didn't feel it might not be you're saying it correctly and i understand my brain is shutting down i (laughs) not enough sleep so watch watch nathan fielder stuff that's my recommendation uh next time we're going to be talking about don't look now from the seventies and <laughs> the French connection from the seventies <laughs> with our returning guest perk. And then after that, we will be recording a special episode with multiple guests returning. And we're going to be talking about Alex Garland's men as a solo feature. So that'll take us to September. I think mm-hmm. looks like it. Um, you got anything else, Josh? No, I mean, you can always listen to my other podcast with uh, no contributor, uh, Eli Osman, and two-time guest, Andrew Ford, uh, where we talk about Westerns, Stagecoach Justice, uh, also based on a TV show, which Eli totally didn't make up, but also he did, and it's entirely fake. But you can find it on archive.org if you search real hard on the Wayback Machine. There you go. And I will plug our Discord. It's a pretty chill little community. It's not too active, but every once in a while we get a good conversation going there. And if you want to talk to either Josh or myself, that is the easiest and best way to do it. Mm-hmm. And our our Discord link and our social media links are in the episode description each week. Or most weeks. Yeah. When I remember. <laughs> um, so that'll do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Please be kind to yourself. Be kind to your neighbors. Take care, everyone. We will see you in two weeks.
Bye. Bye.